WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. The Democracy Forum, rescheduled from November when we had a storm, is up next. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the ninth program in our series this year. Normally runs on the third Friday of each month. Our show today is a snow date from the originally scheduled broadcast on November 16th, and we're delighted to have the opportunity uh, for a do-over. We feature topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about election 2018. What happened and what does it mean? We'll talk about who won in Maine and why, how those election outcomes in Maine reflect national trends or not, along the dimensions of party majorities, women and minority candidates, voter turnout, demographics, and voter suppression. And what does this all mean for governing in the biennium ahead? We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join our conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum this morning. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us by phone today is John Boffman. John is the Associate Professor of Politics at Bates College, specializing in American politics. Welcome, John. All right. Thank you for having me. So glad you could join us. And here in the studio with me is Jill Goldthwaite. Jill is the award-winning columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander, a retired nurse and former independent Maine State Senator. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Election Day was now over three weeks ago, but the dust is still settling. For Democrats, it seemed like it was an election that just seemed to keep on giving. Yet here in Maine, in the second CD, there's one contest that just won't end. New majorities are taking their seats in Maine and and in the U.S. House of Representatives, but the old partisan divisions remain. Jill, let me put it to you first. Give us an overview of who won in Maine and why you think it went the way it did. Well, um, I think the people won, as always, in an election. It's our opportunity to get out there and say what we think about our candidates and uh, in a free and fair way, and there is little indication to worry in Maine about the security of elections. So uh, this election, especially given the turnout, was a win for the people. And uh, clearly the Democrats advanced in terms of increasing their majority in the House, winning the majority in the Senate, and winning the governor's office. So no denying that they came out way ahead. As for the second congressional district, um, from the Republican point of view, nobody won. And from the Democratic point of view, Jared Golden did through the ranked choice voting mechanism and uh, is preparing to take his seat there, although the seat is still being contested by uh, former uh, representative Bruce Palquin. And unfortunately, however that comes out, and it's difficult to see a path for Mr. Palquin to succeed, however it does come out, there's going to be a residue of bad feeling, and that's not a great way to start off a new term. John, how does that reflect national trends in terms of turnout, outcomes, um, unified government, divided government? Give us a broad brush overview. Sure, yeah. I'll pick up on on, on one thing that Jill just said, and and that is that that I think nationally this is an election where where the people won in the sense that 
uh, this was an unusually high turnout election for, for a midterm year. Ordinarily, we expect to see some often significant drop-off in, in turnout from a presidential election to, to a midterm election. And historically, that's somewhat less the case in Maine than some other parts of the country. But this was an unusually high high turnout uh, election. In fact, um, you know we have final numbers rolling in still from, from some parts of the country, but it looks to be the highest turnout uh, by percentage of a midterm in over a century. Wow. Was that um, true in Maine, too? It, not not quite as much here. Um, Maine typically has a fairly high turnout compared with uh, most states uh, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which uh, being the, uh, the voter registration method that, that we use here that most states don't use. Uh, so turnout tends to be a bit higher in Maine than most other states. We didn't have as, as high to climb as, as, as some, some other places did, um, but it was a high turnout year. And, and in some places, it actually approached what we would see in a, in a typical presidential election year, which is which is really really remarkable. Um, it, in terms of the the outcome, um, again, I think I think it, it, having this show postponed a couple of weeks has given us an opportunity to see some more results roll in uh, because of delayed vote counts in places that use predominantly mail-in voting. Um, it looks at this point as though for the U.S. House races, Democrats have picked up 40 seats. And uh, and Republicans picked up two uh, in the Senate. Uh, that may sound like it's a bit of a um, uh, a split decision, um, but I think one thing to remember about the U.S. Senate side is that the Democrats, as the opposition party, that is to say, that the party not in the White House, had the most seats to defend since the beginning of direct elections early in the 20th century. And so the Democrats had a lot of seats to defend, including several seats in very Republican-leaning states. Uh, and so it's not actually a surprise that they lost a couple uh, seats, a l- little bit of ground in the U.S. Senate. Um, actually, it could have been a lot worse for them, given the seats that they did have to defend. Um, so, so it seems to be, broadly speaking, at, at the level of U.S. Congress, um, a a, a it was a pretty good election for for Democrats, um, and uh, and something similar happened state legislatively, uh, nationally as well. Not just in Maine, where where obviously, as, as Jill was saying, uh, Democrats were able to uh, to retain the majority in the in the state house and uh, and 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 uh, win a majority in the state senate. Um, that uh, was reflected in, in many other parts of the country as well. Um, and I think I'll just make one other final note on the way Maine reflected the national trends we we see overall uh, in the in the national vote for the US House about a five-point swing from 2016 to 2018 in favor of Democrats uh, and that's actually almost exactly what happened in the first and the second congressional districts in Maine if we, if we look at the two-party vote um, so so Maine was very much in line with with the national partisan trends as well. When we talk about turnout being way up, who turned out more? I mean, was that right across the demographics, age and gender and everything? Or was it really a couple of groups that were a lot more mobilized now than before? Yeah, um, you know, that that's an interesting question. And, and again, we're, we're going to have uh, a better idea of the exact numbers uh, in coming weeks. But what we know so far is that um, there are... A few groups who turned out in especially large numbers. We did see turnout go up 
across the board, which is not uncommon when, when you have a high turnout election, is that Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives feel motivated and are turning out to vote. And so we saw we saw increases just about across the board, but where we saw the largest increases, um, we saw uh, a lot of mobilization of, um, of women in, in this election, um, and we saw this both in terms of voter turnout and in, in terms of the candidates running and winning. Um, and actually, interestingly, uh, young people, now, now it's, it's it's become a bit of a truism for decades now um, that that young people, as politically engaged as they may be in other forms, don't vote typically at as high a rate as as older age groups. Uh, that's still the case, um, but uh, but younger voters, meaning voters under the age of thirty, did close some of that gap, um, and so they saw a somewhat larger increase. Uh, than uh, than other age groups, um, and that actually turned out to be important for this for the uh, for the Democratic uh, results because that age group is also the most Democratic leaning demographic group uh, age wise. Um, so so the fact that they turned out in somewhat higher numbers than is typical for a midterm year um, definitely had some partisan implications as well. And there was a lot of talk at the national level about women candidates running and winning. Jill, did we see that in Maine? Well, I think that um, we we saw that women did turn out. We still continue to see more um, men in leadership positions in Maine than we do women. Um, but I'll add to John's wonderful data summary. People were happy at the polls. It was like a celebration. They were excited about being there. They were enthusiastic. And this seemed to spread. You know, it didn't didn't matter what party they were in or no party at all. Um, but there was a sense of... Um, an election as an opportunity and and a happy moment in our civic life. And uh, goodness knows we need some of them. Well, we're we're seating our first female governor in Maine. What about the composition of the legislature? Are there going to be more women in the state legislature than there were prior years? There are definitely more. I don't have that uh, specific data point. I know um, in 1994, the Senate was 50% women, which was considered a major achievement. And now there are certainly more women and younger women mm-hmm. in uh, in the legislature. How is that in the U.S. Congress in terms of women who run, John? Yes. Um, yeah, that did turn out to be the case in, in Congress as well. So, so again, we have uh, a couple of races that may still be in a little bit of question, but it, but it looks as though... Um, in this incoming uh, class of uh, of new uh, members of the House, uh, and, and well, and, and Senate, there are going to be 42 women joining. There, interestingly, the partisan balance very much also reflects the gender gap in voting patterns this time around. Uh, 38 out of the 42 women joining Congress uh, are Democrats, and only four are uh, Republicans. Uh, two Republican women in uh, joining in the uh, Senate and two in the House. Um, and that is actually reflective uh, of, of the fact that we have uh, one of the largest gender gaps in voting patterns uh, that we've seen in recent electoral history. It looked to be, and again, these numbers are a little bit uncertain at this point, so it could be um, plus or minus a couple percentage points, but it looks like there was about a 23-point advantage uh, for Democrats uh, among uh, among women as voters, and so yeah, so that was that it was it was both at the at the uh, at the uh, polling place, but also uh, the the winners of office. Um, there's very much uh, um, there there are strong gains for women. 
The, the other thing I'd note about the Maine legislature is that uh, there is one woman in Senate leadership, two in House leadership, but the age of the leadership uh, people is, is rather remarkable to me. Uh, in House leadership, the average age in those five positions, both Democrat and Republican, is 35 years. And on the Senate side, uh, it's 55 years. It's, it makes a certain amount of sense that senators might be a bit older. They might have served in the House previously and so on. But 20 years is a pretty big gap in average age. Well, and that's a very youthful leadership team on the House side. Yes, it is. Two in their 20s. Were the candidates who were elected federally typically younger also, John? Uh, yes, for the most part. Um, it, it looks like um, that will be less so the case uh, at, the, at the leadership level. Um, it looks all but certain that Nancy Pelosi will be elected as, as, as speaker. Uh, but, um, but I would expect as other leadership positions um, get sorted out within uh, the uh, Democratic and Republican caucuses that we'll see more of this younger generation kind of working their way up uh, in those uh, in those other positions such as assistant whips, etc. Um, so, so it hasn't that that kind of generational shift isn't quite as apparent at the level of leadership. Uh, but I think because there is such a large cohort of younger members now, um, it is going to put some pressure on party leaders to incorporate them in some way. And that's an interesting difference between the state and the federal system is that uh, younger people, younger members of the either body do have more of an opportunity that's a much more rigid hierarchy at the federal level. Um, but in Maine, it, it, it really is a merit system. And if you can distinguish yourself uh, early in your service at a young age, there are really no impediments to becoming a member of leadership. It's kind of a hopeful message for the first quarter of our show. A lot of new faces, both in state and federal government, and a lot more activism among citizens. One thing uh, that is, I think, unfortunate is that uh, of the 10 leadership positions, the two presiding officers, the two Democrats, the two Republicans that are the the caucus leaders, um, eight of them live south of Augusta. And that is quite unfortunate. Of course, you have one of the more outstanding representatives of rural Maine in the new Senate president, Troy Jackson. Um, and uh, But other than Troy and uh, Trey, Harold Trey Stewart, who lives in Presque Isle, everyone is from not only the southern part of the state, but kind of the way southern part. And I think that um, given the size of our state and the difficulties faced by rural Maine, uh, it's a bit unfortunate that the choices in leadership really skewed heavily to the south. Huh. Is there a, an urban versus rural split in leadership at the federal level? Can you tell, John? Um, not as much. Uh, they, and, and again, some of this is still in flux because a number of the uh, positions are yet to be voted on. Um, there doesn't seem to be as obvious. Uh, there, the caucuses, both parties ordinarily will make some effort at ensuring a degree of geographic representation down to the level of committee assignments even, where where on a given committee um, seats will be set aside for certain regions of the country kind of implicitly uh, as, they, as, they, as they fill those spots. Um, and so they do typically try to ensure structurally some degree of geographic representation. Um, I mean, part of what 
leads to the imbalance, though, and, and, and Jill, I wonder if this might be your impression of what's happening with, with, the, uh, with the state legislature, is, is simply that Democrats happen to run stronger in certain parts of the country and in more urban areas versus more rural areas in comparison with Republicans. And so there can be, to some degree, a limitation in how much they can incorporate geographic representation or urban-rural representation given the makeup of the caucus. I think that's probably true to some extent. And, you know, the the sad fact is the people in southern Maine often don't know very many people in northern Maine. And um, where I always express it through meetings where centrally located meetings are held in Augusta, which is practically a day's drive from the northern part of our state. And if you hold a meeting much further north, very few people from the Portland area will go. It's just too far. It takes too long to drive there. So there's a real disadvantage for people who are attempting to either serve in the legislature or be involved in other ways in just the distance that there is. And although we like to think that the Internet can help to overcome some of that with various electronic means of getting together, it's just never as satisfying as being face-to-face. And you don't develop the same interpersonal relationships when you're looking at somebody on a screen as you do when you're uh, across the table from them in a room. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum this morning on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Election 2018, What Happened and What Does It Mean? Our guests this morning are John Boffman, Associate Professor of Politics at Bates College, and Jill Goldthwaite, columnist and former independent Maine state senator. Um, It wasn't just candidates on the ballot. There were quite a few ballot initiatives around the country and here in Maine, and there were some big progressive wins in those initiatives too, weren't there, John? Yes, there were, and in some arguably unexpected places too. Um, so I, I'd say that there were there were several interesting initiatives in, in, in different parts of the country, but I'd say there were two broad themes that emerged. Um, one was um, on electoral reform. So several states having um, various uh, electoral reforms on their ballots. Um, not all of the ones that won were in a progressive direction. I'd say uh, there were uh, voter ID initiatives that did pass in a couple of states, but but. What several states decided to do, Michigan among the most prominent of them, is to adopt um, a, uh, a, a, a process for nonpartisan redistricting. Um, so, so over the past uh, decade or so, there's been increasing attention on the ill effects or the possible ill effects of uh, partisan gerrymandering. And so several states have... Uh, have um, now moved in, at least preliminarily towards uh, more nonpartisan forms of uh, of redistricting, and, and there were some um, that that passed felon reenfranchisement measures as well, right? Yes, and that was that's in in terms of electoral reforms. Um, arguably, that's an even bigger deal than than changes in uh, redistricting laws. So, Florida had actually one of the harshest forms of felony disenfranchisement. Uh, essentially, uh, if you were convicted at any point in your life of a felony, you would lose the right to vote for life. And there was a fairly difficult process for reapplying for your right to vote that was seldom granted. And so uh, on the ballot in Florida, even in a year when they elected uh, a Republican governor and a Republican U.S. senator, 
the uh, the state voted overwhelmingly to re-enfranchise uh, those people who had had been disenfranchised under that law, um, and so that essentially allows for another 1.4 million people to become eligible. There's now, an not, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, John. There's an interesting um, new aspect of redistricting, and that is, uh, and this is not my thinking, I I would credit the author if I could remember his name, but uh, the fact that we now separate ourselves into like-minded communities more than we have done in the past, uh, according to this person, redistricting is no longer all that important because you're not going to come up with mixed districts very easily simply because we're kind of developing a a migration pattern that moves people into communities where people are like them rather than different from them. And Maine is often cited as one of the last places where people of different uh, social and economic strata mix it up to the extent that doesn't happen in a lot of other places. But I'm not persuaded that redistricting doesn't matter. And in the last two cycles, I believe, um, the redistricting was uh, not reached, uh, did not reach a conclusion and went to the courts. So in 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 Maine, Maine, in the last two cycles, it has been an um, an, uh, allegedly impartial body that has done their redistricting. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting point, and you're right about um, about uh, the role of residential geography. Um, and it's not that people are necessarily deciding to move to a community because they want to live near fellow Republicans or fellow Democrats, but they're choosing along lifestyle and career lines that may be correlated with their partisanship. And so you end up with communities that tend to be fairly clustered along partisan lines. It's possible still to redistrict by drawing the district lines through those communities, but then that disrupts another thing that we would expect for our congressional or legislative districts, and that is that that communities get representation. And so the idea of representing communities while at the same time those communities becoming more partisan does complicate how you how you draw those lines. What which which one of those priorities uh, has to give? Yeah, we That's, should do a whole show on redistricting yeah. Yeah, because sure. there's a lot to excavate there. And yeah. you know, there are still states like my home state, Wisconsin, which the Democrats won a significant majority in the statewide vote, but their state legislature is still very heavily skewed. Well, in Hancock, in Hancock County, um, one of the new representatives from Dira Stonington has no intervening towns but then has Southwest Harbor and Tremont on Mount Desert Island, and she has all the islands. Fortunately, she's a lobsterman, so she's got a boat. (laughs) But um, she has an extremely difficult district to get around, especially when we have a representative that is not accustomed to being on the water. And then the district... Um, in starts in about Franklin and runs in this skinny strip all the way north and is a, a huge amount of territory, as is uh, Senator Kim Rosen's district, right. which is a similar sort of a strip that runs up uh, inland from Bucksport way toward the north. Opportunities for improvement, for sure. Mm-hmm. But, Jill, coming back to the ballot questions, question one did not pass, but all the bond questions did. Yes, and I think um, probably to the extent that the Democratic turnout was high, those people are most often bond supporters. But in the case of the bonds that were in front of us this time, 
I, I would guess that the support was largely bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think question one, the opponents did a very good job of raising the problems with that. And now you've given me the opening for my referendum soapbox. I think a referendum is very well suited to yes or no questions. I don't think it is all well suited to complex policy positions because we see a single question. There are pages and pages of legislation behind it. Uh, Even those valiant people who try to read that have a hard time wading through it. Uh, And so I I don't support taking the right for a referendum away from the citizenry, but I think there are clear problems as evidenced by most of the referenda we've passed in the last couple of election cycles. Interesting. Now, we've painted a picture of um, newly engaged citizens, newly elected demographics, uh, new energy at the federal level and at the state level, but it wasn't all sunshine and roses. There were some cases of voter suppression. Um, How big a factor was that nationally, John? Well, you know, I I think um, it's a bit of a mixed story. I think think locally there were certainly instances of um, suppression um, and potentially outright fraud uh, in certain locations. As a broad pattern, um, our elections are getting better, perhaps not getting better at the rate that we would like them to. Uh, but I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one one data point on the optimistic side, and then I'll say just a little bit more about the pessimistic side. Yeah. Uh, on the optimistic side, so, so Pew Research um, began doing a, a survey uh, more than a decade ago of state election practices and something that has since been picked up by a, uh, by a research institute at MIT. And they actually found from 2008 through 2016 that nearly every state had improved their election administration, measuring things like how long people have to wait at the polling place, uh, how easy it is to obtain uh, an absentee or mail-in ballot, et cetera. Um, And so broadly speaking, voting has become easier, um, but in alongside that kind of general trend of improvement in election practice, there are certainly some very troubling incidents at the local level um, in, in some parts of the country. Um, and in fact, right now, there is a, uh, an election certification that's being held up in the state of North Carolina because of allegations, very credible allegations in this case, of election fraud. Um, and and so, um, and, and there were certainly um, some very concerning allegations about, about um, what was happening in Georgia. Um, and I think actually the Stacey Abrams um, in, uh, example is, is an interesting counterpoint to the approach that Bruce Poliquin has been taking with regards to the election result in the 2nd Congressional District, uh, which we can certainly get back to. Because in her case, even though there was a lot of concern about the fairness of the election, she did concede it. And the lawsuit that she's filed is not to overturn the result of the election that she lost, but instead to force judicial review of election practices and laws in the state of Georgia in order to try to improve future elections. 
Uh, and this has to do, for instance, with the so-called exact match rule that was used to screen out voter registration, um, even if that voter registration error might have been due to uh, a, a, a clerical error by a state employee, uh, people would still have their voter registration rejected under this exact match rule. And so that's one of a number of things that she's challenging in court. And again, interestingly, not to overturn the outcome of that gubernatorial election, which was very, very close. Uh, and could have been affected by some of these practices, um, but but instead to try to improve uh, future Georgia elections. I wanted to ask you about the, the loss of the Section 5 VRA, John, and ask you to explain to listeners what that was nationally and talk a little bit about whether you thought that had an effect in um, other state elections. Yeah, so, so the Voting Rights Act, um, broadly speaking, had two mechanisms for ensuring that um, that elections were held uh, fairly. One was through a preclearance process, so that if a state or locality had a historical legacy of discrimination along racial or ethnic or linguistic lines, then any time that that state or locality would change election law or election practices, they would have to submit it to the Department of Justice for review. And the Department of Justice could say, yes, you could go ahead, that doesn't have any apparent discriminatory impact, or no, you can't, you have to go back and revise it so it doesn't discriminate against one group or another. Um, so that was one portion of the Voting Rights Act. The other portion of the Voting Rights Act allowed for anyone, uh, whether it's the federal government or an individual voter, to file a lawsuit after the fact if uh, if there, if if that plaintiff alleged um, some form of discrimination again along racial or ethnic or linguistic lines, um, and what the Supreme Court did in uh, the Shelby County case in 2013 in a 5-4 decision is they struck down the pre-clearance portion of the Voting Rights Act, um, but but in 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 a very particular way. So the pre-clearance procedure is still in the Voting Rights Act. What the Supreme Court struck down was the basis for requiring states and localities to pre-clear. What they said was uh, the law was using an outdated sense of which uh, places uh, have discriminated, so Congress needs to go back and rewrite it, which Congress has not done. So essentially what it means is that the pre-clearance mechanism is unenforceable. So in short, what that means is that if a state or locality is doing something that discriminates uh, racially, ethnically, linguistically in their election practices, the only mechanism is to sue after the fact. Is that where the Abrams suit is headed? Yes, exactly. And so this is one of uh, a number of suits that have been filed and continue to be filed, not just after this election, but it's actually a fairly regular process nowadays, is that after um, after an election or after an election law has been enacted by, say, a state legislature, then um, it might be subject to this kind of lawsuit. And that, exactly, that's what that's what the Abrams lawsuit is doing, is saying that, you know, Georgia has a number of practices in the way that it conducts elections that discriminates against uh, that discriminate against African-American voters and Latino voters especially um, and is asking for uh, judicial review of those uh, of those practices but because the Supreme Court struck down the preclearance mechanism and Congress has failed to act to fill in that gap it means that really the burden a lot of the burden on policing bad election practices falls on voters or other uh, you know legal interest groups 
to file these lawsuits, that the Justice Department no longer has the same role to oversee election practices nationally to, uh, to try to weed out discrimination. So it's a, it's a major shift in burden of proof, among other things. Do we have that sort of thing happening in Maine, Joe? We sometimes hear anecdotes about student voters, long lines at the polls. Did you hear anything from this election? Um, the anecdotes I've heard have mostly come from people who are disturbed by the results of a race. I have heard nothing um, from official sources, meaning town clerks, the secretary of state's office, that indicates any concern about um, voting security in Maine. And I must say, um, Sharon Linskett, I'm talking to you, the town clerk in Bar Harbor. Uh, I admire the clerks in all the towns in Maine at their enormous care and diligence in running elections. I was a poll worker um, in this election and delighted to do it. And so I watched for 12 hours as voters came in and the great care that was taken to maintain ballot security. Once the voters had left, uh, the voting, uh, the poll work team um, stayed on for several hours to make sure all those ballots were put in locked boxes, taken by two people, witnessed that they were locked up and put in the safe in the town office until the next day when they could be collected by the state. So watching every step of the process gave me great confidence that there are no fundamental issues, and I certainly can't extrapolate that to every town in Maine, but it is my opinion that uh, town clerks put it all on the line to make sure their elections are carefully monitored and done correctly. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are John Boffman, Associate Professor of Politics at Bates College, and Jill Goldthwaite, columnist and former independent Maine state senator. Our topic today is election 2018. What happened and what does it mean? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378, or if you're calling locally, call 469-0500. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off-air so that others can join the conversation. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. Um, John, we were talking about um, uh, voter suppression and voter turnout. Can can you tell whether the loss of the VRA and some of these tactics, as in North Dakota or Georgia, actually had an effect on um, election outcomes? You know what? This is, I think, an interesting and also subtle thing about about. Um, the loss of the preclearance process in the, in the VRA, um, as well as certain things like voter ID laws have, as they've been implemented in, in certain states. Um, we actually haven't seen always a dramatic drop in turnout as a result. But really that's because organizations, not just party and candidate organizations, but nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations as well, um, have expended an enormous amount of effort to get voters to the polls with the correct documentation in order to vote anyway. This is one thing we saw in North Dakota. This also happened uh, in uh, Dodge City, Kansas, where, where the local election administrator there had decided to place 
the only polling place for Dodge City out of city limits uh, and and hard to reach for for some people, especially those without cars. And what we saw in North Dakota and in Dodge City, Kansas, and some other places where these things have happened is that other organizations step in to fill the gap. And that's wonderful for those organizations to do it. But to do so, they're taking valuable resources away from other activities they might be doing or they might prefer to do in order to mobilize voters uh, or engage in the process. And so I think that, that interestingly, the, the direct effects of things like voter ID laws have been relatively modest. But indirectly, it's caused a vast shift in resources to try to help people satisfy the, the vagaries of some of those laws at the expense of other forms of engagement. We do have a caller on the line, Becky from North Haven. Go ahead, you're on the air. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, uh, first of all, Jill, thank you so much for mentioning the town clerks. I've also poll sat, and I have a great respect for all of them, the amount of work that um, goes into it and making sure there are enough ballots and things like that they have done, and, and the protection of those ballots um, is fantastic. Um, John, I was just curious, I in your former remarks, you mentioned that there was local fraud. And so I guess I haven't heard anything about that anywhere in the state, and I would love to hear what you're referring to. Oh, yes. and it's, uh, th- Thank you for giving me the opportunity to clarify. I didn't mean locally in Maine. Uh, so, so what I meant was particular localities in different parts of the country, um, not necessarily kind of state-level problems, but at the county or town level in different in, in different locations. I didn't mean Maine specifically on that one. Because um, as Jill said, I think we're lucky, in fact, to live in a state where our elections are as well-managed as they are. And that's not to say there aren't always areas in need of improvement, but I think that um, by and large we have rather fewer complaints than in, in some other places. Uh, and so I mentioned, for instance, uh, a, uh, an election certification for a congressional seat in North Carolina that's been held up because of quite credible um, claims and evidence of voter fraud happening both in the Republican primary and quite possibly in the general election. Uh, and I mentioned the Dodge City, Kansas as well. So, so it wasn't so much about Maine, because I, I think we do... Uh, fortunately, have well-run elections here. Thanks, Becky. Um, just to remind our listeners, you can join our conversation, 866-625-9378. We have another caller on the line, Mark from Bar Harbor. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I noticed that after the election, there seemed to be a lot of um, media opposition to um, ranked choice voting. It, it seems to me, you know, that... that um, uh, establishment powers seem to be um, unhappy with ranked choice voting. Me, myself, I love to be able to vote for a, um, a candidate who is not going to be elected and still have my vote count for somebody who can be elected, kind of have my voice heard. So I'd like to comment on that. Thank you. Uh, let's throw that one to Jill. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> um, so I, I'm trying to decide where to start here. The I think it's unfortunate that uh, Mr. Paulquin decided to contest the result of the election, unlike um, the case of Stacey Abrams, as John already cited. Um, He is an earnest and committed congressman, and uh, it's too bad to see if this is the conclusion of that career, it go out this way. From what I have heard, uh, the constitutional case is not in his favor. 
And uh, a constitutional attorney that I heard speak on the radio said that really the biggest question is, was the ballot confusing? And of course, this is something that he is alleging. I did not witness that in my day at the polls. Uh, I didn't witness a greater number of what we call spoiled ballots, where somebody makes an error on their ballot and requests a fresh one. Um, The questions that I heard were uh, the most common one was, if I don't vote for four choices, will the one or two that I vote for count? And the answer to that is, yes, it will. So I didn't witness any great degree of confusion at the polls. And the other um, argument that Mr. Palkwin's making is that the one-person, one-vote practice is – Uh, offended by ranked choice voting. Well, if that's the case, because you have a chance to, as he says, vote twice, what about a runoff election that's held six weeks after the general election? Is that not the same situation? You may have voted in the general election and not be able to make it to the runoff. You may vote in both of those. And is that not the same case? The ranked choice voting is simply a runoff election not separated by time from the runoff. It happens all at once, if you will. So it it doesn't seem to me that his arguments are valid. And it does cast a shadow over the whole process. And I also heard many voters say, really, when they finally understood how this worked, is uh, this is great. And exactly as the caller said, I can vote for the person I would really like to see for whatever office, governor. Um, But I don't have to worry about that person not having wide general support. And I have a second vote that will ensure that my second choice um, could be the winner. So the system worked. I haven't really been aware of the media attacking it. I've certainly been aware of people who were unsuccessful in their elections saying that the whole process is invalid. Yeah, and if I could, if I could just add on, I think I think Jill's absolutely right on, on, on all that. I, I think... Um, I think, uh, as the caller said, there were, um, it seems, quite a few voters who were happy to embrace this who might, as their first choice, prefer an independent, unenrolled candidate or third-party candidate, as, as, as the case may be, um, and, uh, and and could use this opportunity. And, and, I, and even if there were some voters who were confused by it or who would prefer just a, a simple plurality uh, one-round process. Um, the judge, I think, in this kind of case, is going to look skeptically at the lawsuit that that um, that Representative Poliquin has has filed uh, because um, it asks to overturn the outcome of an election after the votes have been cast, um, and that. If this had been a lawsuit filed before the election, before any ballots had been mailed out or cast, it might be a different story. Uh, that 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 he might have been able to to make the case to a judge that uh, that 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 this is uh, is too confusing to voters. I don't I don't agree with that, but I think it's more plausible that a judge would have entertained it as opposed to after the fact, after many voters, like the caller, had cast ballots expressly with this process in mind, um, and asking to overturn those votes for the sake of the possible confusion of a few other voters, um, I think that's it's very unlikely that a judge would agree to do that. Uh, judges typically don't like to step into the democratic process as directly as that. And I think if the candidate had serious issues with... Um the process, that should have been raised when he filed to run for election rather than once he lost, because it's 
hard to make the case now that it's not about who wins or loses when he only raised the issue after he um, has apparently lost the election. Yeah, that's exactly right. Our topic today is election 2018. What happened and what does it matter? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation, 866-625-9378. We have another caller on the line, Sarah from Blue Hill. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. This is Sarah Pebworth, who in this election was a first-time candidate and now a representative-elect for the Blue Hill Peninsula area. And I'm just calling to give a shout-out to you, Anne, and to you, Jill, both of whom play such an important role in the whole process. Um, Jill, having your column in the paper has been such a gift, and having the opportunity to talk with you and, and have some words about what I stood for in the paper was really helpful. And, and to have the League of Women Voters run the forums in the various towns to allow people to have the opportunity to ask questions from the floor and hear the candidates, I think is invaluable. And the website is a resource that I've shared with numerous people. And even the show is just great. So well, I just thank you to so me. much, Sarah. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Sarah. And good luck as you enter this great adventure. Thank you very much. Um, so once again, our topic today is election 2018. What happened and what does it mean? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation, 866-625-9378. We're joined by John Boffman, Associate Professor of Politics at Bates College, and Jill Goldthwaite, columnist and former independent Maine State Senator herself. Uh, let's talk about you know, how the parties performed, who raised money, who turned out voters. Was there... Um, uh, a difference in who had ran a more effective field operation, John, do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, you know the evidence nationally, and I think in Maine also, points to the Democrats having an advantage in terms of voter interest and voter energy, and that was reflected to a degree in fundraising also. I mean, with clean elections in Maine, it's, it's, it's a little different story than some parts of the country where for state and local races, uh, candidates in most places really do have to raise their own money in one form or another. Um, and so I think that um, uh, we do see the kind of thing that was already indicative in the special elections that have been spent uh, that have been held over the last couple of years that that there was more energy on the democratic side both for turnout and and in terms of fundraising um, yeah i think at the local level i i'm i'm not sure of the data on who had more funds available etc but i will say that my impression is that the Democratic Party did a better job of supporting their candidates. I know there was a case in our county where someone was asked, uh, a Republican, to run as a placeholder, and then once the primary was over, um, which that person would win because he was the only candidate, the party would replace um, him with a, a, quote, real candidate. But unfortunately, this gentleman never heard from the party again and ended up being a reluctant candidate um, in one of the the races in the county. So uh, I, it's not the first time I've heard from candidates who say, you know, the party said they'd help me out and do this and do that. And, and then that that did not materialize once the election got going. And novices to the process, it's really difficult. And I, I had no party support. So I, I'm sitting in my kitchen with three or four friends trying to figure out how you run for office. And it is quite an uphill battle if you don't have any kind of support of people uh, who have been there to try to talk with you about just what you have to do, what matters, what doesn't. I think also, if I can just jump in briefly on that, too, I think this is also related to 
both the number of women running for office this year and the success is that um, that both parties to a degree are, are engaged in candidate recruitment, but recruitment specifically of women as candidates, the Democrats have somewhat more of a history of uh, institutionally uh, than, than the Republicans. Republicans have come to it a little bit more recently in Maine and, 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 uh, and some other parts of the country. And so I think that that kind of deeper institutional support for re- specifically recruiting women and encouraging them as candidates and funding them, um, and as well as outside the party with organizations like Emily's List, um, I think we saw that both in terms of the number of women running, but also the fact that such a vastly disproportionate of the, them winning um, happen to be uh, Democrats. Interesting. We've got another caller on the line. David from Brooklyn, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I'm uh, grateful for the uh, chance, and uh, here we are, the uh, fifth Wednesday of the month, and I, I we're talking about uh, local uh, politics and uh, representative democracy and uh, uh you know, the chance for all the voices to be heard in the state, I think the ranked choice voting is a, is a really good uh, uh, step in that direction. I, I think, you know, the the best the way that I think, we, we, you know, we'd like to try to follow in the station is to uh, try and keep an open, uh, an open microphone, more or less, for all different viewpoints to at least be heard and uh, uh, let them let themselves be known. I just... I wondered in that context if, if you know, the, the, the reason why we don't hear the WERU review today on the uh, fifth Wednesday of the month, as we're accustomed to, might have anything to do with a, a, a controversy which I've caught wind of uh, regarding one of our members, Yo, and the staff. And hey, I, hey, David. I hope that's not it. If you have a question or comment on you know, this particular topic. Otherwise, I would encourage you to call the station office if it's something about the operation yeah. of, the, of the station yeah. here. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Uh, there's, if I could just add one thing about ranked choice voting, where the first that we said the spoiler effect was not a good thing. Now we have found a way to uh, resolve that, but people are now saying that the spoiler effect had its upside. And I I think the answer for me to that is to both parties is if you want to win an election, get a strong candidate. And if you don't have a candidate who can muster 50 percent of the votes, maybe you're picking the wrong candidates. Do you want to jump in on that, John? No, I, I, I agree completely. And, you know, we saw a version of this uh, with the U.S. Senate race, obviously, right? Uh, so, so we've got we've got uh, our uh, independent uh, U.S. senator elected to a second term, um, and uh, there were Democratic. There's a Democratic nominee running and a Republican nominee running, who each fell well short of the 50 percent threshold. Uh, there's no controversy about ranked choice voting there, um, and uh, and I think that you know this is. It's, a, it's granted a new system, um, and it probably takes some voters uh, a moment to think about how they would fill out a ballot uh, in, in this way as opposed to, to the other way. But I think um, in contrast to what one of the other earlier callers said about, about some media criticism of it, I think – there's actually there there are actually a lot of uh, eyes watching Maine and and seeing whether this lawsuit 
um, proceeds or not um, to figure out whether or not it's something that other places want to adopt now too. Um, we've had we've had this or versions of this used locally in a couple of places in the country, uh, but obviously this is the first state to to adopt it, and uh, and it it may be the the start of uh, of something uh, to to deal with the spoiler issue, to allow for more independent or third party candidates to to have a shot at uh, at winning and that sort of thing. The other um, pet peeve of mine is the spoiler issue in which. Uh, Elliot Cutler is always accused of throwing those elections to the governor. But uh, in the second issue, it was actually election, pardon me, it was actually uh, the Democratic candidate who was the spoiler at 17 percent of the vote. And there are candidates who in multiple candidate races do get more than 50 percent of the vote. Um, Senator, then governor candidate uh, Angus King did so in his second election. Janet Mills did so for the governor's race this time. Our topic today is Election 2018, What Happened and What Does It Mean? You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine, and our guests are John Boffman, Associate Professor of Politics at Bates College, and Jill Goldthwaite, columnist for former columnist and former independent Maine State Senator. We've uh, got time for one more call. Maybe we're starting to run out of time, but if you want to join the conversation, 866 866- Six two five nine three seven eight. So, um, in the twenty sixteen election, there was a lot of controversy about whether the polling was any good, whether the polling dissuaded or encouraged people to turn out. How was the polling this year, and did it have the same effect? You think on the way the election felt and ran as it did um, in twenty sixteen? I think this election was an extremely partisan, in a good way, driven election. I think that uh, both parties were highly motivated and uh, the polling perhaps was more influential internally in terms of who they were running and, and how those races were conducted. But as far as the general public, I think this was much more about um, which party had control of legislatures. And I think it, it actually disadvantaged independent candidates because the party voters felt so strongly that they had to either keep or win legislative bodies, um, gubernatorial seats, uh, congressional seats. And I think that was the overriding factor more than any polling. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add a couple of quick points on that. I mean, one one is that um, kind of a, a, a broader national version of, of what Jill's describing is that we, in addition to this being a more partisan election, what we've seen recently uh, is a nationalization of elections so that, that you know, local factors still matter for local elections, but we see far more of kind of national partisan attitudes and national uh, topics um, kind of filtering into local vote decisions, uh, so that that the, the old adage from from Tip O'Neill uh, that all politics is local, uh, it wasn't strictly true at the time he said it, but it's less true now that we see these national kind of partisan trends affecting local outcomes uh, more than we used to. The other thing I'll, I'll say just briefly is I just want to kind of speak up in favor of the quality of the polling in 2016 to, to a degree. Um, the national polling actually was quite accurate. Um, the, the polls, by and large, had uh, Hillary Clinton up about two to three points, uh, and that's about where we ended up. Where the polling failed in 2016 happened to be in state-level polls in particular states, especially in the upper Midwest. Uh, so nationally, actually, the polling was pretty good. I think the polling was pretty good this time as well. Good. 
Go ahead, Jill. Um, I I think that the uh, more of a factor possibly in Maine, and again, I don't have data for this, but the uh, not just negative advertising, but advertising that seemed to um, miss the mark in terms of what the average person was thinking. There was a lot of rhetoric that used very trite, canned and phrases that were used over and over and over again. And I think people are turned off by that. And if there is any factor outside of the what are the issues that may have affected races in Maine, it might have been some of that advertising that was sometimes just confounding in terms of what, what does this even mean? You know, Senator King and love beads and a tie-dyed shirt. What, what does that mean? Um, so perhaps that was a bit of a turnoff um, to Maine voters. We're um, coming into the last few minutes of the show, but I want to sort of talk about the voter turnout, the voter enthusiasm, um, the fact that this was uh, a big sort of midterm election, and whether either of you think that momentum is going to be sustainable um, into 2020. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I really do. I mean, I think this election was largely about people's reaction to um, national politics, particularly the presidency, and um, with the changes in the in Congress leading the way, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of activity there, uh, I think that the interest in and enthusiasm for elections will um, be sustained. And it's, it's probably people have gotten a bit more sophisticated in terms of how they analyze issues. And there has certainly been an overwhelming amount of contact uh, in Maine with our congressional and senatorial offices at the federal level. And I don't see that slowing down. Yeah, I'd agree. And I'd say also that um, this is, uh, believe it or not, the upside of party polarization. And I don't want to paper over the real negative consequences of the kind of polarization that we see in, in politics these days. But one of the things that it does is it motivates voters. Uh, it raises the stakes. Uh, and and so I think that um, we're not, as Jill was saying, likely to see that ebb between now and, uh, and, and 2020 or, uh, or 2022. Um, I, I think that... Uh, Another thing is that voting is habit-forming, and we see a lot of new voters between 2016 and 2018 coming into the process, and repeated voting means that we're going to have an expanded electorate going forward in in coming elections as well. Well, we're running out of time today. We're not quite out of time, but I'd like to give you each a chance to throw any parting thoughts. Election 2018 is one for the books. What do we make of it? Well, I have a wish And my wish is that um, despite the delicious opportunity facing Democrats um, in Augusta and in the federal Congress, it is so hard to resist the temptation to now we have the votes and start pushing a lot of things through unilaterally. It it never ends well. And if um, Democrats could restrain themselves from doing that and and really work to attempt to be bipartisan, that would be great. Quickly, John, party yeah, thoughts. I think similar theme. I think for, for me, the biggest concern I have is that politics these days is too much about campaigning and not enough about governing. Um, and now that we've had the election, uh, it, both in U.S. Congress and, as Jill was saying, at the state level, we need to find the branches coming together, the parties being able to negotiate 
budgets and to be able to actually uh, to govern on the, on the issues that we need. On that note, I think we are out of time this morning. Thank you to our guests this morning, John Boffman, Associate Professor of Politics at Bates College, and Jill Goldthwait, columnist and former independent Maine State Senator. Thank you for joining us this morning. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thanks to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. We'll be taking December off, but we'll be back January 18th with a great show. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Thanks and good morning. Support for WERU comes from a